Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the uh, Rothko Chapel. I'm David Leslie, Executive Director, and we are just so grateful for your uh, presence with us this evening. So thank you for uh, taking time to be in community together. 
Um, I want to do some special thanks um, while we're here because this really is a community uh, act of organizing. Um, first, to my colleague Ashley Clemmer, who's hiding over in the corner in our uh, Robco Chapel team. Uh, thank you very much for your hard work. And I, I also want to lift up Ali Alts and Donnie and Elena Corbett from Interface Industries for Greater Houston. Uh, they, um, right after the, uh, as I recall, the president's uh, first executive order, uh, quickly organized a very big community interface uh, prayer gathering. And our, our thought was how do we continue that momentum um, here and in other places. I, I really want to thank them for their uh, contributions and recommendations. So thank you all very much. A um, couple of housekeeping items. If you could silence your cell phones and no pictures, that would be an act of sacredness, uh, especially in relationship to your brothers and sisters here tonight. Uh, we will have pictures from the evening, which will be posted on our website so that you can see that. But that would be very helpful. Today, as you know, we're living in very unsettled times, characterized by both uprootedness and uncertainty. According to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, there are now more than 65 million displaced people, more than any time at least in recorded history, which equates right now to one in every 113 people on earth has been driven from their home by persecution, conflict and violence, or human rights violations. And this number, at least in my mind, grows even larger when we think about the number of people who fear deportation, or who wonder if their town or their neighborhood will be the next one to experience war, conflict, famine, or other forms of human-caused crises that will cause them to be displaced, quite possibly never, ever return home again. This evening, we gather here in the Robco Chapel on International Women's Day to lift up all those who are displaced and particularly women who are especially impacted and who oftentimes literally bear the scars of the violence and hardship associated with forced migration. We also gather this evening in appreciation and support of all those individuals and organizations, both in our community and around the world, who dedicate their lives in support of those who are displaced and work hard to address the systemic causes and barriers that contribute to the migration crisis. And this evening, we come together collectively to help strengthen our own resolve, both as individuals and as community at large, to work as change agents, promoting the timeless and sacred causes of both peace and justice. Leading tonight's meditation are friends, neighbors, family members, who know firsthand what it means to be displaced from homes, from communities, countries of origin. They are faithful advocates who tirelessly work with refugees and immigrants, who believe that our country, our nation, has a responsibility to be a leader in serving people seeking relief from war and oppression, whether that is as refugees, immigrants, or asylees. Tonight, it's my pleasure to welcome to the Rothko Chapel, the Reverend Hannah Atkins, Rector at Trinity Episcopal Church, Rafa Abdin, who is the Associate 
uh, president, vice president for Immigration and Refugee Services at Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston. Asinja Badil, who's a medical caseworker at Interfaith Ministries for Greater Houston. And Chloe Crane, who is currently the lead volunteer for Interfaith Ministries Women's Initiative Project. We welcome all of you this evening. And also very special welcome to Mohammed Sheikh Harol, who is sharing his gift of music with us this evening. Their biographies are in the program, so you can learn more about them, you hear more about them tonight. We'll also have time on the plaza after the program in the chapel for further visiting, because we also hope this will be a time for you to meet new people in your community and strengthen bonds of friendship and solidarity in that manner. So tonight it's my, again, privilege to present the Reverend um, Atkins, who will lead us in the meditation, which will include times for reflection from other leaders here. It'll be time for spoken word, for silent word, for meditation, and we have time for open mic kind of community conversation, because I know you bring a lot on your hearts here this evening. And again, following the program at 7.30, we'll retire out to the plaza for further conversation. Reverend Atkins. Thank you. So what David just described is a lot we want to do together tonight. Um, and so it is both my, my privilege and my duty to pray, to hold times of silence, and to move us along so that we have time um, to hear from all of the speakers, the three speakers who have so much to share, and from each other. Um, so I wanted to start with a prayer for International Women's Day. Women are a reflection of the glory of God. Today we honor the women of all times and all places. Women of courage, women of hope, women suffering, women mourning, women living fully, women experiencing joy, women delighting in life, women knowing the interconnectedness of the human family, women honoring the sacredness of the relational, the affective, women quietly tending the garden of human flourishing, women boldly leading the transformation of unjust global structures, women seeking wisdom, women sharing wisdom, women receiving love and women giving love, women life-giving, women the image of God, Loving God, we celebrate your faithfulness and love. On this day, we commit ourselves to the promotion of the full humanity of all women everywhere. We know that whatever denies, diminishes, or distorts the full humanity of women is not of God. Help us to be faithful to your call to love. 
Amen. We come here tonight from many faiths and from none. We come here both celebrating this day of women and focusing on the crisis of refugees and immigrants. Um, my husband is an immigrant from El Salvador and the day I spoke about this at the interfaith vigil at interfaith ministries the day the ban was passed my youngest son came home and asked if his friends Amin and Arshia would be deported the next day in tears and I didn't really know what to say but with a mother's love I, I said they'll have to go through me. And that was kind of a bravado thing to say because unless we stick together and work for healing and justice and truth, they will go through many of us. There is such a need for hope and signs of solidarity then when my church put up a simple banner that says immigrants and refugees welcome, we are getting notes and people coming in like we've never seen before. I got this, I brought it just to show you the kind of simple, spontaneous things. Just on a post-it note, it says to the priest, that's me. <laughs> As a Muslim, I want to thank you for your posting a sign outside about welcoming refugees and immigrants. We appreciate what you do. Thanks. We're not all the same, but we are all Muslims. We are all one. <laughs> refugees flee situations of war and danger. Um, my husband worked in a social movement in El Salvador after his eighth grade class was basically killed, <clears throat> wiped out in El Salvador. I took testimonies of people who were denied entry into the United States because they thought the politics at that time were that they were economic refugees and not political refugees. I speak from the perspective of the Christian household. And if there's one issue in which our scriptures are unequivocal, it's giving hospitality to the stranger, feeding and clothing those in need. So I bring a litany of truth to share with you. We come seeking a reality to which we are called as women, as men, as human beings. We come to affirm our life we come to refute untruths, to challenge injustices, 
to confront oppressive structures that bind us. Therefore, we are called to declare the following truths. This is true, that women are created women, the image of God, co-workers with God in caring for life and struggling for the liberations of humanity and for a world order that respects each one's dignity. This is true, that all women and men are called to be in solidarity with each other's struggle for dignity and justice, to learn from one another and to challenge one another as sisters and brothers in critical and prophetic solidarity. This is true, that the whole people of God is called to denounce militarism, to challenge the root causes of poverty in the name of the God of Hagar, who as a refugee was the first person who dared to give God a name. This is true, that everyone is called to respond to the gift of life and to the needs of our community with all our heart, all our soul, and all our reason. This is true, that women and men, empowered by the Holy Spirit, should challenge poverty and patriarchal culture. And this is true, holy living God, the day and the night whisper your name and sparrows proclaim your glory. Make us, by grace, the winds of justice and the flames of peace in the world. Amen.
My name is Wafa Abdeen, and I am an Arab and Muslim woman who came, uh, was born and raised in Amman, Jordan, of Palestinian descent. Uh, I started working in refugee and immigration work because uh, I wanted to uh, really honor the people I come from. They have been in refugee camps for, five ge for four generations now, all over the world still waiting for their diaspora to end. Uh, but this time, you know, as someone who works with refugees and immigrants, has been a really difficult time. You heard David talk about the numbers, the staggering numbers. It's the highest on record that we have 60 million um, people who are really forced to flee their countries. And we have around 21 million determined refugees. And we have seen all these images with Europe closing doors and people coming to their doors and they really did not want to admit refugees. So who are these refugees we talk about? So a refugee is a, someone who is unable or is forced to, to stay in their country of origin. They're forced to leave because of persecution based on um, race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or being member of a particular social group, which could be anything like their family, their uh, sexuality, any of the issues that make a person different and can face persecution and oppression because of it. But it's always important to understand and put things in context. So how many refugees were really settled in the Western uh, world in last year? So only 107 refugees, 107,000 refugees were resettled uh, last year in you know, different Western countries. This is less than 1% of the refugee population around the world. And the US have had historically been one of the best countries and they have welcomed the most number of refugees between 70 to 80,000 a year. Usually this is determined by the president of the United States. Uh, Texas has also been a very welcoming state. I mean, it is the second state in the number of refugees that have been admitted. So last year we had close to 8,000 and uh, 2,100 of them really settled in Houston, and we as refugee resettlement in Houston had the honor and privilege to work with them and to serve them. So we meet them when they come at the airport, and I see several of our caseworkers and you know, supervisors here, uh, Huda and Claire. So they wait for them. We know that a family of 10 is coming, for instance, so we prepare the apartment, we get them the furniture, we uh, put ethnic food, and uh, then we meet them at the airport. They come with their travel documents, you know, with very little possessions into a country they understand nothing about, into a system that they need to navigate and understand. And we really do our best to welcome them. But they are the ones who have to face this uh, feeling of displacement, having to really belong, having to understand the language. Uh, all their you know, education doesn't really mean much. They have to prove that they can do things. Uh, doctors start working sometimes as drivers. They have to start somewhere. A and we, as refugee resettlement agencies, 
What we do is we have a partnership with the federal government and we assist them to achieve self-sufficiency. And usually we try to help them get that within six months. Wow, such a short time for someone to really start a life. And we do that by providing different types of services that include cultural orientation, case management, uh, English as a second language, and all of that. But, you know, so that's really every day what keeps me going as well as my work as an immigration attorney who, um, ha you know, have really done a lot of asylum, who are also refugees, but we call them asylees because they get their status when they come into the U.S. They really also are escaping the same uh, types of persecution. But the last few weeks has been, there was a flurry of activity. Uh, so we had all these executive orders. I mean, every week we had one. Actually, we are on number four now. And you know what these executive orders did? First of all, it uh, banned, you know, people to come into the U.S. from predominantly Muslim countries. Uh, it suspended the refugee resettlement uh, work for 120 days. And it, it also, uh, and the president also decided to lower the number of refugees from 110 to 50,000. So again, think of the 100,000 from all over the world that are settled. We're even getting half of them. In this time, I mean, you know, after the, uh, you know, people sometimes, I, I don't really approach it as political issue or, you know, which party. It, it's just what happened to people's lives. So since that, we, our clients are really afraid. They're not sure whether they're going to be safe here. So after escaping fear and persecution and thinking they found the safe haven where they can live with dignity, they we can really bring their kids and, and achieve lives for themselves. Uh, now again, they're afraid. Will we be staying? This, whatever we tell them, they're very afraid. Hmm. We also have immigrants who have been detained. They go, I mean, we, have, we work a lot with crime victims, with women who have been abused or have been victims of human trafficking. And some of them, because it's a very complex immigration system, have deportation orders they didn't even know that they have. And now we're trying to help them and they're waiting on their visas. Some of them have to report to the enforcement offices and they have been doing this for years. When they come to me and ask me, what will happen when I go? I can't tell them, like before, you're not a priority. You're not going to be deported. You're waiting for a case. Because now all the priorities have been completely you know, removed. Uh, everybody is a target. The, the border used to be within 100 miles of our actual borders, whether it's from Canada or from the, um, Mexico. Uh, now the border have been extended to all of the US. So anybody who's found without status uh, is subject to deportation and there are no you know, priorities that are put there. They also used to be able to deport people without due process, without going to court, just it's called expedited removal. If they uh, have been here for two weeks and they're caught within these two weeks. Now that time has extended to two years 
Anybody who, and it is, you know, uh, it's going to be on the immigrant to show that he's, he or she has been here two years. You know, people ask me, what should I carry with me to prove that? Because once they're caught, they will be put in a detention center. They have no time. They can be deported within 24 hours. And so these are the stories that we're hearing every day. And, and some of the other disturbing, uh, you know, factors about the executive orders, at the beginning, it's put priority for, you know, uh, certain religious minorities, which mainly was Christians in Muslim countries. Uh, and, and I mean, you know, as someone who has worked in human rights, has, uh, you know, understand the laws, this is a complete violation of our own laws. It undermines our long-held values of inclusion, and it does tarnish, it will tarnish our reputation in the world as a beacon. The, the U.S. has always been a beacon for those who are coming here to seek refuge. Are we going to continue to be this country anymore? But I want to go back to the day of, you know, the, in which we celebrate women. This is Independence Day for Women, and it's a great day to remember all the achievements that women have really been able to, to do, whether it's in economic, cultural, in all, you know, aspects of life. We've come a long way from not being able to really vote or, you know, have a say in anything. But I would like to remind you all of the refugee women, because they really may comprise half of the refugees. So imagine 50% of the numbers that we talked about are women and girls who are, you know, fleeing all these, uh, all this horror. And although it's very hard for any refugee, uh, it, it is particularly hard for women because of their gender. They do suffer more from infringement of the right. A lot of them have suffered from sexual violence. Uh, they also, I mean, in addition to being responsible for themselves, they're the caretakers of families. You know, that's really true of any, uh, if you look at them in any uh, country of the world. So they take care of the kids, the old, the sick. So while they're trying to kind of learn English and keep a job in order to survive and be self-sufficient within the six months that we expect them to be. They also are taking care of their families. They also have to get over their uh, victimization, being able to really rebuild their shattered life of, because of what they have suffered. So I guess, I mean, you know, for me, it's uh, a lot of the things, even though there were a lot of bad things happened, there were so many good things happened that showed how good the people of this country are. When I saw hundreds of attorneys just going to the airport, you know, it's uh, like after September 11, you know, I remember I had this sinking feeling that anybody who's a Muslim is going to be targeted. And in some, in you know, instances it happened. And, you know, a lot of my friends tell me that now they say, well, we're not going to allow Muslims to be registered. We are all Muslims. I try to remi remind them it happened. I mean, after September 11, Muslims had to register. Muslims were, uh, you know, had lost a lot of their rights because of who they are. But this time has been really different. It was really good to see, you know, how the community responded with strength. 
mean, they were out there asking for their rights. Attorneys really made a difference. I supervise around 40 attorneys in my you know, program, and most of them are really newly graduating attorneys. So uh, the other day I looked at them and I said, do you realize how important you have become? If it wasn't for the court, I mean, the order would not have been stayed. So and this is what is really special of this country. We are a country of institutions. We have, you know, checks and balances. And it is now attorneys and the courts and the people of goodwill who stand in the way of injustice. That's what we need to remember. Um, but I also want to, you know, as I talked about the suffering of the women, uh, those who we have the honor and privilege to serve at Catholic Charities, they teach us a lot about resiliency, about what it means to have faith, what it means to be able to re-see hope and future despite everything that they've been through. So I ask you all to stand with refugees, to remember that um, we do this not just for them, we do it for us because that's who we are as people and nation and as Americans. Um, I, and there's a lot you all can do. I mean, the refugees come uh, and the ones who really succeed are the ones who have families who adopt them, who have friends who you know, check on them, take them to teach them about the system, help their kids learn English and support them in all kinds of ways. Uh, you can volunteer at the five uh, agencies, resettlement agencies in town, and I provided a list of them. You'll find it outside uh, at the table. You will make a difference. Together, we can all make their life better. Thank you. So we're going to take a few uh, minutes of silent meditation to think about all that we just heard.
Good evening, everyone. My name is Asim Jabadil. Um, I came to the United States in 2008 as a refugee, um, originally from Iraq. I traveled first to Istanbul, Turkey, uh, to apply for a refugee program over there um, with my husband and two kids. We stayed there uh, for almost nine months. Then we got uh, our approval. I think about that time, every day I have to go and call and check the status on our application. Now, comparing my situation back then to the people now, uh, they got uh, canceled their uh, visa. It's really something so sad and terrible. Anyway, I arrived um, in June and uh, Interfaith was my agency. I usually don't say my agency, I say my second family here in the United States. Um, I came here, I didn't know anybody and um, Interfaith really surrounded me with love and support. Uh, everyone over there was so uh, supportive and uh, they showed me the way how to help people. I did that from that moment. I tried to reach to every woman. Uh, they came from Iraq or Syria or any Arabic country that I can uh, provide a translation, interpretation, or anything that I can do for them. Um, I actually still do that. So um, in 2014, uh, there's something happened really changed my life um, when I saw how ISIS attacked Iraq and Syria. They attacked the village, my village actually, in the north of Iraq, and um, they took many women as sex slaves. So after two months, I decided to go there to be with my people and see what's going on with these women. I travel alone, I didn't take my kids with me, I was so scared about them. And I met uh, a lot of women in camps. The whole community was displaced. Uh, a lot of women were just used as sex slaves um, in Mosul and Raqqa. I saw many women from Syria, they escaped from Syria to the north of Iraq to be in camps in Kurdistan, Iraq. So um, I thought the only help I can do is um, document their stories and uh, reach out to the international community and see what I can do, what, what help I can get for them. So I interviewed um, actually 10 women and um, I will just say some I quote some of uh, what they told me. I choose two Iraqi women and one Syrian woman. I want to share what they told me with you. So those women were escaped. They escaped ISIS captivity uh, in the um, uh, late uh, 2014. So the first story is the story of my friend Nadia. I quote, I was in the second floor in the school village. We were all scared and shaking and did not know what's going to happen. I looked at the window. 
I saw them putting the men in a truck, taking everything they have. And I saw one ISIS militant grabbing a young man watch from his wrist. I don't know why I still remember this moment. After 10 minutes, we heard the shooting. They killed all the men. I became a sex, a sex slave. It was uh, in the evening in Mosul. He was sitting in the room with his friend. I mean the person who had me. I looked there. There's an open window. No guards in the garden. I thought it was time. I gathered my stuff. I put my mother's picture with my ID. I was so scared, but I decided to open the window and run away. So I opened the window. I passed my foot to the garden. I heard the sound of weapon. I knew I'm dying, but I wished I was. As a punishment, he put me in a room he beaded me and asked all the guards to come rape me one after one that night until I lost my conscience. The second story is a story of a Syrian woman. I met her in the north of Iraq. The story of Salma, 16 years old. My town was overtaken by ISIS in Syria they came with black clothes. Everything was black. I was so scared. And I asked my mother, what's, go what's going to happen? She said, hopefully they won't hurt women. I couldn't sleep that night. Then it was Wednesday. My father came with visitors. They are ISIS, ISIS in our house. I knew I was sold to them. They raped, me in, they raped me in front of my father. We women got all the hurt. We cannot breathe here. Then the third story, it's from Khalida. It's an Iraqi woman. When they, I mean ISIS, sorted the women according to age, I saw those putting old women in trucks. I did not know where, the, where they are taking them until we found out 73 mass graves in the same area. They burned them alive. They killed my husband. They just ended his life. They took me with my 11 years old daughter. They raped my daughter in front of me. I was in the next room, next my room. I heard her screaming, and I still can hear her voice. I couldn't do anything for her. They took her to the, uh, to the hospital after they raped her. She was bleeding, and she died in the hospital that night. So this is the story of this woman. I believe we should fight for this woman every and each moment of our lives. Women need an open doors 
in the land of freedom, everywhere in the world. Women with these types of tragedies, you can't believe they live in camps with the very hard conditions. No water, no electricity, nothing. Those women I mentioned were living in a displaced area. Some of them, they, they had a chance to run using a boat going to uh, Turkey, then to Greece. Some of them, they're still waiting actually in camps. So I don't know, sometimes they are asking me how United States could do something like that, close the doors to these people. I actually just tell them to have faith in people. I have faith in American people, and I know they can do change. Thank you. We're going to take another few minutes in silence to think about what was just shared.
Hi. Um, thanks for having me here this evening. Thanks, Asinja, for sharing that. Um, my name's Chloe Crane, and I run Interfaith Ministries um, Women's Initiative. Um, most of the women who belong to our group are from Syria or Iraq. And what we do is we get the women together on a weekly basis to socialize and to network and to build community. Um, when you flee your home country, one of the things that you leave behind is this massive network of support, that spider web of community that, that keeps us all feeling good about ourselves. So what we aim to do at the women's group is bring them together so that they can meet each other and start to build that community again. Now, a number of our women are very isolated. Um, not all of them, but a number of the women in our group are extremely isolated. They may live miles away from another Arabic speaker, and they don't have the necessary language to plug themselves into the community. So they may spend hours sitting by themselves at home. Um, some of those women may also have small children, pre-K children, that are not at school yet. And those children, too, are very isolated. They're at home all day with their mums without an opportunity to, to play with other children. Um, so we bring these women together so that they can meet each other and form friendships. But one of the other things that's really hard for refugees to do is to meet Americans. It's terribly, terribly hard for them to actually plug into this community that they've been put into. Um, and I have a wonderful team of volunteers who help transport the women to the group each week. And through the intimacy of sitting in a car with them and then hanging out at the group and meeting the women, they have slowly built and developed friendships with these women. So what starts off as a come in for a cup of tea slowly develops to sharing a meal. And as Wefa was saying, um, refugees that have a local friend have a much higher rate of socioeconomic success. What starts off as a cup of tea very quickly becomes improving their resume, helping them look for a job, making sure that they get a grant. It makes a tremendous difference in their life having a local friend. And the women volunteers in my group are slowly helping the women who come to it assimilate and become part of the community that they so desperately want to belong to. Um, when I was thinking about what I could share with you today, some of the s stories from, from our group and the experiences from our group, I thought about some of the more dramatic things that have happened, you know, children that have been bullied at school and we've helped their mums overcome that, or suicidal teenagers struggling to fit in here that again we've helped their mums address. Or I thought about some of the success stories where we've helped women continue with their education or women set up cooking classes um, so that they can teach Houstonians how to cook their local cuisine. Some amazing things have come out of our group. But I've kept on coming back to the, to the one point that when you're new in a place and you don't speak the language, the mundane, the everyday, the simple stuff can be petrifying to overcome. Um, 
And I wanted to give you a little example of how, as a volunteer, you can make a tremendous difference in people's lives by helping them with the simple and the mundane. It's an echo of kindness that can go a long way. Um, so last summer, we had a Syrian family that arrived, a very close-knit Syrian family. Um, the, the mother was um, heavily pregnant, and she had uh, a little, two, li two little children, um, a first grader and a tiny little kindergartner, just, just about old enough to get into school. So she joined our women's group, and we helped her register with Interfaith. We helped her register her children for school. The school was about two miles away, perfect. Um, but then we found out the school was full. And the family was told, no problem, put your children on a bus every morning at 6.30, and they'll travel for an hour to the, local, to the nearest school that has a space for them. Um, they'll be dropped off at three, you can pick them up then. Okay, with a little more guidance than that. But what you have to realize is for any of us with children, that would be quite a stressful situation. To put a tiny little kid on a bus for an hour would be a stressful situation. Now you have to think you're talking to a family that have just survived civil war, that have clung to each other. These children have never been away from their parents. And you're saying, put them on a big yellow bus, no problem, they'll be back at three. It's a petrifying scenario for someone who's come from that kind of a background. And that's where, as a volunteer, you can step in and make things better. Um, so I agreed to meet the family at 6.30 in the morning when the children were supposed to be on the bus. I helped them find the right bus. I'm a fluent English speaker. It wasn't that easy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they were the first children on the bus. There was no one else on the bus. Um, and uh, it was raining. It was pitch black. And these tiny little kids climbed up the step onto the bus. The bus driver was in a hurry, had to get on with his route. And in the condensation on the window, the children just made little circles and pressed their faces up against the window and put their hands on the window as the bus pulled away. Uh, the parents were extremely distraught, but trying to be brave. But one of the things that made the whole situation easier, for the children especially, was that I had agreed to drive the family to the school so that when the children got off the bus, they saw mama and papa waiting for them. They were able to give them a big hug. They knew they were in a safe place. The parents knew where their children were gonna be all day. We introduced them to the principal and the teachers. And then I drove the father back to the point where the bus was gonna stop so that they knew where to pick up his children. Um, and he got there for about a month, uh, an hour early every day, <laughs> stood in the sun because he was worried that his children would, would, would get there. But as a volunteer, you have the power through a tiny act of kindness to make a situation better. The children felt okay about school, and that's the beginning of their life here in many ways. And um, I wanted to just sort of, on a personal level, say I was a TV producer in the Middle East for about 10 years, and I covered a number of the situations that these, these women have fled from. looking at the aftermath of a bomb blast or a shooting or an air raid or whatever, and you see the true horror and sorrow that humanity can throw at each other.
there was one thought that kept on coming back to my mind. And that thought is, but for the grace of God, there go I. Now, you don't have to be religious. You know, flip a coin and it's got your name on it. It could be any of us in those situations that these women come from. And now I find myself in Houston helping some of those women, and I have the same thought. But for the grace of God, there go I. It could be me. It could be my family. And if circumstances were flipped and I was ever in that situation, I would hope that somebody would hold out their hand with a small gesture of kindness, which is all it takes to bring these people into our community. Thank you. a few more moments of silence and a prayer and open for questions and comments sharing. Grant, O God, that all may recognize women as equal partners in creation and prophecy by the grace of the Great Spirit. Empower women at home, at work, in government, and in the hierarchies of churches, temples, mosques, synagogues, and all, all other places of worship. Provide safety and protection, O gracious divinity, and inspire just laws against all forms of violence against women. Amen. So now we open for a time of questions, sharing. We ask that folks speak into the microphone so that all can hear. question. Is this on? Okay. I don't have a question, but I have a, a comment. I just really want to thank you, everyone that's spoken today, for sharing your stories with us. 
And, uh, but mostly what I want to thank you for is the actions that you've taken. It's, uh, you know, there's so much going on in the world and it's so easy just to get overwhelmed and resigned and think about how terrible it is and then not do anything. Talk, you know, gossip about it or talk to your friends about it. So it's, it makes such a difference to know that you're taking the actions that you're taking and I'll look for the actions that I'm going to take out of today. And I encourage all of us to look at the actions that we can take. Because what's important is to do something. So thank you. Is this mic? Yeah, this mic is on. Uh, good evening. Uh, let me go over my fear of public speaking for a moment. My name is Candy, and I've met Chloe and Elena. I don't know if you remember me, but I work with Rana. Um, Chloe invited me to um, Tuesday morning coffee to meet a woman named Rana. And um, I've never done anything. It was so far out my comfort zone. But I began working with Rana once a week, and it has changed my life. And I think it's changed hers, too, for the better. And each of us can make a difference. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm a former refugee from Ethiopia, and I came in the 1980s in the United States, which is I'm one of the privileged ones to come to this country, which is thanks to the founding fathers who have the separation of government, the three branches of government, which is they have been talking a few minutes ago. I just want to give you some information about the process, how long it took me to come to the United States. It took me two years after I was registered in the United Nations in the Sudan, Khartoum. So the United States refugee, processing refugees, is one of the most detailed ones. No other country has that kind of process. It is very detailed, and at the same time, it is accurate most of the time. What I'm saying, it cannot be any, anything. Like, it is relative, it cannot be 100%, but if it compared to European and others, this is the most detailed one. When people are arguing about security reasons, they better have another good reasons to justify this. No. Even the countries they are, they are detailing right now, they are giving us. None of the countries, these refugees they come from, committed heinous crime in the United States. Mm. They came from Yemen and Saudi Arabia. I can tell you this. I'm in that region. Out of the 19, 15 of them came from Saudi Arabia. Is Saudi Arabia in the list? Hell no. <laughs> so where this came then, this information, to release screening for 120 days and others? I don't know. I don't care. We a Republican or Democrat or any other. This is a lovely country. People, they don't kill each other because of political differences. This which is very nice one. But at the same time, when people, as they look around, we have to have a justifiable reason for our mind, for our heart, for our future, for our children. Refugees are not coming with their backs only. They come with their mind, with their brain, with their culture to invest in this beautiful land. Malibu Wurmbright was 
our secretary of state, former secretary of state, she was a refugee. Henry Kissinger, he came as an immigrant. Einstein was a refugee. Five of the Nobel Prize winners, they came as immigrants or refugees. So our country, the United States, has been blessed having these people coming to, the, to this country. So we have to think, what's going on? I hope people, they will go back and look again and redo it and, and rethink again what they are saying. Thank you very much, I appreciate it. I want to thank the people who are working in the resettlement for meeting the needs for crunching the needs so quietly that women always do. And I think it challenges us not only to warmly welcome those who are able to come here, but to further so much for hosting this event this evening. Not one for standing, but <laughs> thank you so much for hosting this event this evening. Um, I'm a pediatrician. I was based for many years abroad and most recently was in Rwanda. Um, and many of my colleagues um, suffered the horrific trauma associated with the genocide. Um, and I found the events of late to be extremely disheartening. Um, and I guess this is more of a question to the local organizations. Um, what types of advocacy initiatives are occurring to assist with some of the more national level um, pressing concerns with regards of refugee reentry? I know we've talked a bit about some of the court cases, but um, you know, for those of us that are Houston-based, what would you recommend to have an impact on that point? There, there is a lot of advocacy going on on the uh, state level, the, the city level, as well as uh, international. I mean, I invite, uh, and, um, I mean, in the um, nation, I invite you to start looking at the Texas legislation to start with. I mean, they're passing all kinds of bills that are going to really affect the rights of people. One of the bills that, you know, we have been working uh, on trying to stop is uh, related to deputizing all the uh, law enforcement, local law enforcement to act like immigration 
you know, uh, law enforcement. So then when you have the policeman stopping you or you're asking for support because you're a victim, they are going to be, you know, turning, asking about your papers and then turning you over to ICE. So there is a lot of work. Uh, I mean, I can connect you, I'll, I'll give you my card and I can connect you to some of the organizations and, and different groups that are doing that. The other thing that, I mean, as individuals, I mean, I can tell you like even as agencies now, if this ban goes through, we will not be able to continue to serve refugees. I mean, because all the funding comes per capita, we call it. So uh, as many refugees we serve. And, you know, it's, it's really very disheartening because our even staff are themselves, you know, former refugees and they, have, they, they do work from their hearts. It's not a job. So, I mean, you know, all the national organizations and there are nine of them who are doing refugee resettlement. Uh, if you can, you know, kind of uh, do search about the VOLACs for refugee resettlement, all of them have, you know, action for advocacy and things that you can do in order to advocate. And, and we all at whatever level, whether it's the school, I mean, the schools need you to go and see these kids go there and they really sometimes don't belong. Some schools have really good programs and in some schools we have after school. So there is so many levels that you can do that work, so. of the community outreach department. Um, is, as far as things you can do on the individual level, in addition to, to donating, um, are um, call your congressperson, call your state senator. Every minute that they um, or their staffers are um, talking to you about um, your discontent with the refugee ban um, is a minute that they are worried about their reelection. Um, Houston, due to both its vast size and some pretty deaf gerrymandering, has quite a few congressional districts and congressmen to go with it. So a quick Google search will turn up who your congressman is, um, how to contact them, um, what the phone number is, and what town hall meetings they're hosting. So I know that John Culberson, the rep for, um, for this district, for example, um, is hosting a town hall in a few weeks on a Saturday that's pretty accessible for people who work during the week, for example. Show up and show up in numbers to voice your discontent. Hi. Um, one thing that I like to do is go to church every once in a while and listen to messages. And there is a message of hope that I hear when I attend the church that I go to, and it's something to the effect of... Uh, uh, good is stronger than evil, truth is stronger than lies, light is stronger than darkness, and love is stronger than hate. And I hold on to that, and I think that's something that we need to hold on to in our hearts. Thanks.
Well, seems like it seems like we are at a at a point where people have been able to share if they want to share. So what we'll do um, now is I'll read uh, a poem prayer and then we'll hear some music and then all are invited to continue the discussion and a reception in on the, the plaza.
This poem, Prayer, is from, from a book, Women Pray, Voices to the Ages from Many Faiths, Cultures, and Traditions. I will not die an unlived life. I will not go in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days, to allow my living to open to me, to make me less afraid, more accessible, to loosen my heart until it becomes a wing, a torch, a promise. I choose to risk my significance, to live, so that which comes to me as seed goes to the next as blossom, and that which comes to me as blossom goes on as fruit. Amen. You're welcome to join us.